Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Six Degrees of Association. I'm joined today by Lowell Applebaum of Vistacova. We were talking a little bit before you know we started rolling here, and I was just telling a quick story that I was speaking with somebody from the association industry just a couple of days ago, and you know he was sort of sharing, "Hey, I'm starting to see this trend. You know, this might be an opportunity for you, but it, it's just something that I'm witnessing. It's the idea that the three-day fully immersive strategic planning meeting is kind of you know, going by the wayside and people are really looking for more of this half day uh, strategic planning that you kind of get in there, check all the boxes, get it all done and then move on. And maybe we do this more frequently, but, and I, I had shared, you know, was this a budget issue? I'm thinking in my brain as we're talking, is this just, you know, this is the new transactional culture. Everybody wants things now and fast, but yeah, I immediately went to, you know what, I'm recording re you know, very soon with Lowell. And I thought, what a what a great question to throw at him and get his thoughts. He does this all day, every day. Well, we, we could talk about this for hours. I say there's two things within there, Lucas. Uh, one is the general challenge of time at this moment, and I'll go to that second. I'd say the first thing is around the premise of a strategic plan. I think that's changing, right? Uh, I think in general, what I'm speaking with CEOs about more and more is the frame of a strategic framework rather than a plan, mm. with the framework being right vision, clarity, priority, and direction, so that even through this age of disruption we're in, you can build many plans off of a framework and those plans can be disrupted. How you do the things, what do the sprints look like? But the framework should remain as a true north. And look, the over under for the strategic framework building I'm talking about is usually a day and a half of a retreat, sometimes a little less. There you go. And you split the difference. Yeah. Right somewhere in there. But to get there, you need to be able to have enough time and space that the cohort you bring together to envision a future that you can advance mission has the capacity to build coherence, right? That they're able to hear each other's diverse perspectives as well as they bring in of who they're representing to then integrate that into a collective narrative of like a meaningful future. Do that in three hours, right? With all the priorities. Maybe. See, seems, uh, seems sprinty. To me, not impossible, right? But like quick. And so do I think that you need to have that kind of investment every single year? I think it's a good idea to think intentionally about how to make sure that there's fluency in the strategy and leadership every year. Yeah. Uh, but it's the plans, right? How we're going to do it should continue to have an annual update. I do wonder what you said, though, like in terms of the transactional economy, if they're really the bigger question is the challenge of time at this moment. Instead of technology giving us more time, uh, it is in its own way allowing us to fit more in in the time we have. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think, I don't know about what you're hearing, but I'll certainly say across the board, people seem more stressed for time than that the Jetsons future where, you know, technology does everything for you. Uh, is that it's actually taking away the spaces we used to have downtime and filling them with other things. Yeah, I, I sort of looked at that the same way. So on one hand, the more brief strategic planning more often could have a lot of value because, goodness, I, I don't know anybody now that's doing a strategic plan and then waiting five to seven years to do another one. That doesn't, that doesn't seem reasonable. But that wasn't right. too long ago. That was the thing. You do a strategic plan as an association every five years, and then you'd come back and revisit three to five, right? Um, and now we're forced to kind of compress that just to make sure there's nothing on the horizon that we missed. I really like the idea of framework, but, but the culture today is such that if you're not doing something, there's almost an, in, an indication or an implication that 
I should be doing something, right? If I don't have my phone in my hand, sure. I have my phone in my hands. If I'm not talking to somebody, I should be talking to somebody. And if I'm not, it's it's either you know fear of missing out, fear of not executing, and uh, right. And so I, I my fear is what you miss by compressing everything and getting a bunch of smaller chunks in is you miss the the white noise, you miss the time to think creatively and do all the things that Chat GPT can't do, right? Um, it, it influence some ideas that are a little bit outside of the box that haven't been done before, scale back and really look at things. And that takes time, in my opinion. I would agree with you. The creativity and innovation does not come in compression, right? Like it doesn't mean you can't have sprint innovation sessions, but yeah. the noise doesn't let, doesn't allow you to hear yourself or others as clearly as innovation demands. And I think it correlates back to the strategy we're talking about. Maybe the, it isn't that you're doing strategic planning like every year in these half-day sessions. Right. Maybe it's a greater focus of what is the time we gather our leaders who are the responsible parties for the strategy of the organization of how are we best correlating that time to strategic consideration, conversation, ideation, right? If you look at board agendas, is it reporting out from committees or is it actual consideration of what is the strategic generative discussion we need to have? How is every agenda item correlated back to our priorities? Is there clarity and like, are we having a conversation for information, right? For brainstorming, for decision? So that those become, if you will, mini strategy sessions, not because they're these big strategic planning, but because we have a strategic leadership entity that's guiding our organization to the future that they need to realize. Yeah, we're getting, um, we're getting closer and closer to what the larger, you know, Fortune 100s and big business, for-profit businesses do already and have been doing for years, which is, you know, there's whole systems, EOS and others that people follow that that do just what you're saying, that break it down from uh, a framework. I really like that. And I want to ask you about what that looks like in a second, to a plan, to actionable items, to short-term actionable items. And we've actually moved internally at our organizations to a mid-year sort of strategic plan, but it's not a it's not a redo the plan and it's not touch the framework for the bigger picture stuff. It's just, let's just check in and see, are we still on the right course? Is, are, are, do we still have the right, you know, rocks and sprint items in front of us to make sure that when we get to the end of that um, plan in the short term, in the one year plan, that we're still on track to hit the target, right? But I like this, this framework idea. I'd love to pull on that thread a little bit more. What, yeah. what, how do you differentiate a framework from a plan and what does that look like and, and why? So let's define plan in a moment, right? If a plan is a set of actions that you're going to take in order to achieve a goal that can be measurable, right? And so you can also do course correction and celebration. Uh, while you can't have high-level strategies, those plans, we're talking about things that typically people think about when it comes to SMART goals and others that are more practical, tactical, right? Mm -hmm. And these are the things that change our methodologies and where we invest specific resources to bring about output. And there should be those. But those are the operational pieces that then make resource investment decisions, like how they're put into play. As you think about, like, we inherently in our organizations, there's a natural cycle of leadership transition. Whether your board members serve every year, every two years, you know that annually, biannually, right. you have people leaving and people coming in. And when we talk about strategy, like the requirement for a healthy organization is that your leadership is fluent in the strategy so they can tell meaningful narratives of organization intent, progress, success, setback, 
right? But they're each fluent storytellers in their own medium, not just the chair, but every board. Yeah. And so what is the strategic framework you need that allows those board members coming in that may not have been the authors to be fluent storytellers? And it's not going to be the granularity of a plan, right? With 12 month milestones. It's going to be the high level, like what are our priorities and what will achievement look like in them? And if we add up all those statements of achievement of what we're trying to do, that should be our vision and mission and why we exist. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that's the level we're trying to achieve because we need our leadership to be the spokespeople to advocate for and to better create awareness of and to invite in for our organizations in a way that naturally staff, right, who aren't members of the industry often can't be. So this 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 question might be a little tough to answer, but but how many of those items can you really pack into a plan, right? Do, we, do you have a magic number that you typically, hey, you need to have two items do you need to have three to five can you have can you have 10 items in a plan uh whenever i'm talking with uh clients and partners i say to them that if my kids need therapy someday it's going to be because i facilitated them <laughs> and so when they when they ask me questions like how many priority areas do we need how many people should be doing it uh, i don't i refuse to give single answers because the truth is Right? There is a customization to culture and capacity that has to be done. If you ask me what I see most often is I see most organizations have three to four priority areas. And if there's a fifth, it's because the fifth is either a specific focus on DEI or operational excellence, like internal review. Right. Right. But less than that one to two for many organizations, when there's only one to two, unless they're a really small organization, they're so umbrella-esque. Right, that you have sub goals under your goals, and sure. then you're just cramming more. There's in. things that can hang off each of those, but exactly, and more than that, like breadth for depth, right? Like, there's only so many things that you can pri- focus on as priorities. And I'll I'll just say this: successful strategy, the most important thing it can do as a framework or a plan, however you frame it, the most important thing it can do is to help an organization's leadership say no. Right, it has to be excellent in helping them say no. Because there's no shortage of things our associations can do. It's not about how many things you can do, right? It's how many things can you say no to to have the capacity to do the most important things well and excellence, right? That will really drive home mission. Yeah. I heard something recently, right? There's a, we we mentioned time, there's a finite amount of time. And every time you say yes to something, you're really saying no to something else. Correct. That could be bigger and more impactful. So, and, and the analogy was, excuse the analogy, but it's like a six shooter, right? And you only get six bullets and all of the items that are coming in front of you, you can shoot six of them. And so you, you have to be really selective and patient with no, no. Okay. That one could be really impactful. Let's shoot, you know, that rubber duck or whatever it is at the circus, but you have to be selective and you, you can't just shoot the first six rubber ducks that you see because you don't know what's coming behind them. And you're saying no to all those, right? Yeah. Well, I think you're discussing how do we have models of innovation inherently within the systems of our organizations, right? Like where, where do we have the capacity, not just for ideation, but for piloting and testing and so that we're able to like have right size failure and learn from it before we invest fully in initiatives that could really advance what we do. And, you know, I see some organizations that do this by actually hiring someone whose role it is to be like innovation expert and they are there to like bring forward pilots to try to bring revenue and bring value. 
for organizations that specifically, I mean, it's always amazing to me, even if we, as we come out of this COVID period, organizations who have these rainy day funds, mm-hmm. that are like six times their budget, right? Like, yeah, the capacity that you build in terms of, you should have fiscal sustainability and responsibility, but that money should be used for like strategic investment. There are organizations that say every year we're going to be putting X percent or $20,000, whatever it is, to strategic experimentation. We're going to get an idea or two. And just the process of doing that, even if the ideas don't work, builds a greater capacity for what you're talking about. Yeah. Invest the money rather than putting it in your pocket. Like, I, you know, there's even something biblical about that. I mean, it's right. It's the idea that don't let it sit there and, and, and grow roots. It's, it can go out there and, and become something real. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and then you can tell a more authentic story that we're investing in the future as an association, right? Like it doesn't mean everything we that we succeeded, but over the past two years, here's the five things we tried. Here's what we learned. Right. Absolutely. And that's yeah. That's an engaging story that others want to participate in, knowing that you're willing to try things and not just do things the way it always been done. Absolutely. I love it. And so we talked about, you mentioned culture um, in, in that as well. And, and we talked about sort of pre this, pre-show how culture, you know, we look for culture fits within our own organizations um, and couple that with, you know, there's board turnover. And how selective are you seeing boards factor culture into that selection, right? Because that's a big, that's a big piece. Sometimes you get a six person board. I mean, I've seen associations with thousands, which I think is a little bit silly, but I get that's probably written somewhere in their bylaws. And now they just have to live with it, unfortunately. But certainly the smaller the circle gets, um, you know, each person that comes into a group changes the culture, right? That's just the nature of it. And some people change it more than others. And so how much, how much are they thinking about that influence for what they have going on now, but also what they have going on in their larger, their larger plan. You know, when we talk about culture, we're talking about like, what do you experience when you're a part of the organization or the leadership? Like, what are your expectations of action and of interaction mm-hmm. uh, that lay the groundwork for then work progress to be done? And at least what I find in many organizations is that some have organizational values. Few have board values stated. Hmm. And I really actually like how the American Counseling Association uh, posits how they go through their value work, right? But the idea that not just these words, right, the five, the seven words that are important. Right. Right. And not just even like the sentence of like, how do we define these words? But ACA, like what they do is they actually have examples. And this is a conversation that has to be had is, all right, if our value, right, is transparency, the sentence and how we define it, but then how do we live that value as leadership? And let's come up with six to eight like tactical ways of what actions demonstrate we're living that value. And so a value isn't a hypothetical, right? It's translated to a practical. Yep. And then once that's done, that it is ludicrous to me that like you wouldn't share that with candidates to be in your leadership before they're on it so they know what they're agreeing to, right? Because if you don't have a agreement of like, these are the values by which we lead as an organization, not that they can't change and they should be discussed. Then where is there any accountability that can be held if someone doesn't live by those values? Right. right. And bringing so, somebody on is a two-way street, right? It's a two-way commitment. 100%. It's a two-way obligation that 
I want you in my organization if you fit my set of values, but I also don't want you to join my organization if it's not a good fit for you, right? And, and with all of these expectations, if you don't believe, the best answer there, if you can't do it, is no from yeah. them. Correct. Right? I don't want to be part of that. That's okay. And that's, and that's mutual fit, right? Like that, that correlates to, we often look at, as we should, the leaders or the staff we need based off of organizational priorities of what are we going to measure as success, right? Right. What we don't factor into that as well is the cognizant decision that actually what enables those priorities success is the culture of the people who are doing the work to get there. Mm. And so if there's misalignment of culture, even if you get to the bottom line success, the process of it is going to deteriorate your your potential for the future. Yeah. It, it actually makes the role of coming in as somebody facilitating a strategic planning. I mean, you know this better than anybody. It makes it more difficult if they haven't done this, right? I mean, sometimes you get through the door, you get one step, and they want to solve our strategic problems, but there's actually cultural board problems that have to be addressed way before you can even get to that actual work. And that becomes sort of the new scope before you can get anywhere, right? I mean, I, you're chuckling, right. you know it's true, but that is, we've all been there. It's, hey, the issue is not the issue. The issue is not that everybody's not on board with what we need to accomplish for our mission. The problem is there's something else, part of the culture that's not allowing it. That's actually the bottleneck, and it's it's the most difficult thing to deal with. I mean, that that's why I think that in any process of strategy, you need to build in time before you're in the room to build pathways of input. Uh, an example, I won't name the organization. Sure. This happened a few times, uh, but is that in the series of leading up to the strategy session itself, you know, did a number of interviews and interviewed a board member. And then, of course, the interview, they're like, I got to tell you, honestly, I don't think our association should exist anymore. I think we're done. And that's a board member, right? That's honest. Yeah. Well, this wasn't the first time they had that thought, right? And so where was the culture of, sh like, looking for input and transparency? That that was a concern, like, I'm so glad they raised it because it shifted what we did process-wise. Right. But if you think about, like, the health of the organization, the culture and the values, right? If you're the responsible party and you think an organization is so offset that it shouldn't exist anymore, you as a board member have the legal responsibility to express that, you know? And what's, what's off that hasn't happened. And so I think well, I do think it intersects. What you have a quote um, on your on your website? Um, facilitation done right is throwing a stone into a lake, right? Yes. And so I, I I kept thinking as you're saying, well, board selection gone gone wrong is like throwing a big stone into the lake. It's just the ripples are negative, right? I, I think they would say it's throwing a boulder into a lake, but yes, yeah. I mean, the, the rippling effects of having somebody in that seat could be unknowingly positive or unknowingly negative. And the impact is not just the immediate time while they're sitting and making the decisions. The decisions they make, as, as we know, ripple for, for decades, if yeah. not more. I mean, you, you were walking into issues that we're trying to solve with associations because of these ripples that happened two decades ago. Well, I think it's in part how we posit service, right? Is service posited as an exercise in hubris or humility? 
mm-hmm. right? Like if it's hubris and it's about like I'm the president, I get the big suite. Oh, what do you mean it was COVID? I didn't get my suite this year. I'm going to get my suite next year. Right. Versus humility, which is the actions that we are taking, the decisions we're making, right? Maybe there's going to be a short-term effect, but the truth is that's going to be the leaders that are in these seats five years from now. That will be the ones that will be able to reflect back and say what impact we were able to make. Right. That's a very humbling perspective, right? That you don't get the short-term return of joy, but it's a long-term investment for the seeds that you plant. Well, in some cases, not only do you not get the investment, you get a little bit of tarnishment, right? It's seemingly to your industry or to your peers that you've done something extremely wrong on the surface. Hey, you, you lost because of the decision you made, you lost one of our top five members. Well, it was actually in the best interest of the organization longer term. And that's really difficult to see. Uh, and so I think it, it's, it's not easy, right? We could say, oh, you got to make these decisions and, um, put culture first. That's not, that's much easier said than done. Well, it's easy. Anyone can do it. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> the, uh, it's not easy, and I'm not sure it's getting easier, but I do think this moment of time of forcing organizations to shake off the cobwebs of antiquated systems without choice does open the door for those who continue to function this way to be more malleable. We're saying to notice, look, a leader saying no, a leader saying stopping something that's been in place inherently has this gut reaction of loss. Like, oh, this died on my watch. Yeah. Right? Instead of a phoenix thought, which is like out of the depths of like the cessation, what what rises? Yeah. And I think that we have the opportunity, organizations right now, to really have more of that like phoenix perspective, if you will, mm-hmm. than in the, okay, we got through a time that was like bumpy, how we put everything back in place and where it was and I can lock it back in and maybe like super glue it this time so it won't move again for the future. Yeah. How do you, how can we create alignment, better alignment, and maybe even incentive to take those risks, right? Because it's, for some, that's really difficult. Uh, You know, you're jumping off the cliff, you're going in, you're changing something that's been in place. Like, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Um, but it is broken, so we need to break it some more sometimes. But Can I say, that, is, that is one of the, the worst aphorisms there is, right? Oh, that's Just that, for a moment, if it's not broken, don't fix it, which means you're waiting till the moment something breaks to do anything yeah. about it, right? Instead of like, while it's in decline. Right, right? Like, or, or how could we improve this, right? The, exactly. machine, the machine's pumping out the widgets. It's great. How could it pump out more widgets? Or how could it right. do this more efficiently or how could we reduce the energy it takes to create, to produce the widgets? It's, or do we need a different widget? Or right. do we need a different widget? Yeah, that's right. How could we do a different widget? But I, I distracted you. Your, your question was, how do we create systems for this? Well, how do we create systems, incentives, alignment within the organization and the industry and the leaders to, hey, I, I want you, Lowell, to take a risk. I want you to do something different because I can see your longer term vision. Now I want you to do it. Yeah. Um, and I, at the risks that come with that, I still want you to do it. How do we, how do we incentivize that? I mean, accolades, recognition, reward, and elevation, right? Like we aspire to that, which we see elevated. 
Like, um, in part, you want to sit in first class because you walk through first class, give everyone their dirty eyes, but you see they have the bigger leg room. Now you're like, I want to be there. Right. Like if you if you never see it, you're like, oh, that'd be nice, but it isn't the same pang. Right. It's right. just it's always this so interesting to me when organizations are talking about running member only events. And they're like, oh, the non-members will be sad they're not there. It never got on the non-members calendar. They don't even know it happened, right? The di- the difference between that and having like all members, non-members there together, and then having a reception afterwards just for members, where non-members like can see, like exclusive, they need to join to be a part. And so I, I think when it comes to innovation, it's a similar, like that which we see elevated is that to which we aspire. And so is there actually a system in place in our organizations that recognizes the priority of innovation, demonstrates it a priority by investing resources and by in its annual report, like it's not just like, here's who we served, here's the value created. There is a permanent section of here's the innovation attempts we took. Right. That's a great word, right? You immediately change this into a positive, like instead of, hey, here's all the money that we spent seems like a negative. Oh, everybody's going to look at what, where did you spend your money? Here's all the innovation uh, and investments we made for the industry. That's, yeah. yeah. And and by the way, experimentation with failure is still an investment, right? Absolutely. Because if you take it as a lesson learned, you know, for, for my company, for instance, like one of our values is that mistakes and errors are to be celebrated and lessons learned. Mm-hmm. Patter, patter, and mistaken errors are of concern and we need to address, right? It's not the mistake or error, right? It's the repetition of it that you then has a different feel to it. As long as you insert that little bit of time right after where you take to sort of digest, you know, explore what was it that made this an error? Could we have done something differently? Okay, now we know, right? But if if you just sort of, yeah, you take it as an error, Oh, I fell, yeah, self-doubting and move on. Like that was a failure. And we can't control everything, right? There are moments that an organization tries to innovate or experiment and it doesn't work out and actually could work out next year. It just happened. The environment wasn't in the right place at the right moment. Yep. Yeah. I'd love to see each association put that list up on social media. Here's all our innovations this year. Everybody, you know, what did you, what did you want? How are you progressing? And if you, if you don't have a board like that, you're not, but I'll say, if you've never seen a AAAS's annual report, they do a really nice job each year. This is the organization for science. Mm-hmm. Uh, their annual reports, like a full interactive webpage with their areas of foci. And, uh, you can really, they have it well framed in a way of like where they're pushing ahead. Right. And so they don't have one that's like innovation, but you can see in the things they're doing, how innovation is driving. Right, a future focus. Yeah. Well, I think if you're at the top of that organization, you do that enough. If you do have to make kind of a big withdrawal one year and make that decision where seemingly it tarnishes you, hopefully you've built up enough, you know, um, equity in that industry and with your colleagues and everybody else, they understand. Yeah. That's okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive that one. Well, that's part of, if you don't give space, right, to learn then everyone's just going to operate from fear and never try anything new. Yeah, that's right. So, so speaking of learning, um, you're, you're doing some learning. You, I am. You're on the PhD path or you're on the doctor path here of education. 
talk to us a little bit about that. What's what's the impetus right. there? What are the lessons learned? The the narrative that I say at the beginning is that I have a lot of friends who talked about getting a COVID puppy, uh, and I got signed enough for a COVID doctorate instead. It was a great idea when I was home every day, right, and not going yeah. anywhere. Lots of great uh, ideas came through. Three and a half years into uh, finishing up the coursework aspect, uh, it has been an incredibly meaningful journey of learning. Uh, but, you know, in the world of learning, there's all these options nowadays. And I have plenty of certifications. I have lots of certificates. I love to always learn. But it took me a decade and a half to really choose to jump into another formal learning experience because I was looking for what the right one was for the right moment. Uh, and my, it's a doctorate of education, the focus in leadership, uh, and my bent is organizational leadership. And for the work that I do as a facilitator of vision and strategy and governance and board training and structuring, it's such a great alignment that has really deepened the well of tools and approaches and considerations and constructing experiences. And I think ultimately uh, that begs the question for anyone. I mean, my hope is everyone's on a learning journey, right? Yeah. Is are, are you learning because this is something interesting to you? Like go take a master class. Like those are amazing. Yeah. Am I, am I ever going to tell a joke like Steve Martin? I won't. Do I completely appreciate like watching his master class? I do. Absolutely. Realistic. Um, you know, or am I investing time in this as a learning journey? Because I know there's going to be practical application, right? Like this summer I'm signed up for a four day course because I've always been interested and I've taken a few certificates in appreciative inquiry. And I'm like, this is what I'm seeing more and more is that the tenets of appreciative inquiry are needed in facilitation in an elevated way. So I'm doing an intensive course towards certification, right? That's a very practical place to go. Yeah, uh, I think each of us should be learning all the time. I agree, and there's and there's so many outlets, as you said. There's you can go back master level courses, doctorate level courses, certifications. Certificates are out there galore, right? You can go to Amazon get certificates. You can get your AWS. You can get Salesforce certificates. You can get LinkedIn certificates, um, undergraduate degrees. I think there's something to be learned from each of those, and I think there's more to learn than just the learning. Because you have the environment, you know, what is the sort of the space and grouping around you? Is it sort of a large group undergraduate type environment versus a smaller group, maybe master or doctorate environment versus an online certificate? I'm just sort of consuming information, right. checking boxes. Or is it on the job where I'm making mistakes and I'm learning through actually getting my hands dirty? And this is probably an impossible question to answer, but I like it anyway, because we've, we've talked about it. Do you learn more from your from your doctorate class about leaders or do you learn more from facilitating leaders and sort of working with them or are they or are they just different? Uh, I take pause at the word more. I know. That was the impossible part. Right? Because, look, I think there are some classes I take where I'm not as open to the content because it's not as interesting and I don't think I'll walk away with as much. I think there are some facilitations, right, where the group is right set to open a possibility. And let's be clear, like every meeting you're in is a potential classroom, a board meeting, a strategic planning meeting, because the premise is one of like collaborative listening and learning should lead to better outcomes. And so I said, 
you know, in, in those situations, I don't care if I'm facilitating, I'm always a student. Uh, and I think the, the more comes from how do we do a better job of emboldening and empowering our colleagues to recognize the opportunities of learning that occur every single day and to incentivize those and recommend those uh, and to create capacity for those. Organizations that are slashing their professional development budgets for their staff, I mean, I understand budgetary constraints. Yeah. And I'll say, like, if your staff are the same people three years from now that they are today, having not grown whatsoever, how are you going to feel about that? And if that's not who you want and your employees, then what are you doing today to help them become who you need them to be tomorrow? Right. We talk a lot about, okay, we want our organizations to grow. We want them to scale if that's your goal. But internally we do, right? We, we, we look for growth. We look for scale. And the only way I'll say this in every um, strategic planning or mid-year that we would have is, well, the only way we grow is if everybody in this room grows. Yeah. Right. How could the organization grow and you stay the same? That, that doesn't work. We're just going to add, add more people. That's, that's not how it works. Like, right. Every, everybody within that, within that room, within that space, within that meeting and defined within the organization has got to get better. They have to grow or they're not going to be equipped to be a part of the organization essentially. Right. The organization's now bigger, different, moving. We're doing different widgets. We're doing more widgets. We're doing something. Well, if if your speed is one, two, three, creating widgets and the machine needs to go one, two, three, four, one, two, right, you're just not going to be equipped. And so it's a constant conversation of what skills do you want? What skills are relevant? You know, but then marry that with, you know, where's your passion to? I think there's the part of it too. Show anybody into a box they don't want to be in. The pursuit of professional fulfillment is ever changing as our careers go, but you can ask that as a coach or as a supervisor in terms of as you think about for the future, right? Like, where do you see places that you think for what you know today are going to be places that like where you're going to do excellent work and feel like you've done a good job and are going to be fulfilling for you. And then let's look at models of what that looks like and what you're going to need to get there. And like, where do we provide those opportunities that can also help you from where you are today? Absolutely. Well, Lowell, I, we could sit here and talk back and forth for, for days. I mean, I, I really could. I appreciate the time. Um, I'm going to come in here and, and wrap us up. And as we do on Six Degrees of Associations, I'm going to ask you, is, is there somebody else you think that our audience could benefit from listening to coming on the show and, and sharing some experience? You know, I just was in Chicago at the ASE Foundation reception. And uh, as always, I had an engaging conversation with the ever-brilliant Jackie Price Osafo. Uh, who is a multi-time uh, award winner in the space and involved with the forum there in Chicago and is an executive director and a Delft scholar, and she should come on. You would enjoy the conversation. And thanks for coming on again. Um, really enjoy our time together and, and look forward to seeing you out there in the industry soon. Thank you. Appreciate the time, Lucas.